Good morning, Heartland. Good to be with you. Let me say hi to all of you who are watching online. We're so glad that you're taking time out of this blustery cold weekend to get to be together with us. Um, as Dan mentioned, there's a lot happening this new year here around Heartland. We've got a lot of stuff that's starting up, and every single one of these things is an opportunity for you to connect and take a step with God in your faith. And a couple of those things, one is right after this service, every service in January, uh, stop by the hub. We've got something called First Steps. It's just a few minutes where you get to learn a little bit about who we are. Uh, you can introduce yourself. We get to introduce ourselves. And we get to help you find your place uh, to make Heartland more than just a, a building or a service to come to, but make this a community to be a part of. So we'd love to meet you out there, any service uh, this month. Also, Mark your calendar, men and women, coming up in a few weeks. We've got men's and women's studies kicking off. So if uh, for the women in our body and friends of yours, uh, on January 31st, the study called When You Pray, it's going to play so well into this Sunday morning series that we've got going on, an eight-week study starting January 31st, that if you've ever felt like prayer was just this tough thing to crack, or you need a refresher, or uh, you just wonder, am I doing this right? This is a study that's going to be looking at Jesus' teaching on prayer and how we can become people of prayer, how you can be a person of prayer. So women, Wednesday mornings, Wednesday nights, starting January 31st with childcare available. And then also for you men, we're not leaving you out. On January 31st, we're kicking off a six-week study. We can't do eight weeks. We're doing six. Uh, called uh, Goliath Must Fall. And this is a study for us to come together around tables to hear some great teaching and to look at some of the Goliaths in our life, the enemies and the obstacles that are in front of us that are keeping us from being the people, the men, the husbands, the fathers that God is inviting us to be. And we need one another on that journey. You need someone to help you on that journey. So register today, either one of these online on that QR code, uh, Wednesday nights for the fellows, Wednesday mornings or Wednesday evenings for the women we would love to welcome you to the table to grow together. So as Dan said, we are continuing a, a series that we started last week uh, on the Sermon on the Mount that perhaps is Jesus' most famous teaching that even if you've never spent much time in the Bible or even if you've never spent much time in church, you've probably encountered some of the teachings and statements from this sermon. It's one of the most impactful and one of the richest sermons, teachings that we could ever experience, so rich that we're giving the next four months of our, of our Sundays to the three chapters in the book of Matthew where we see the Sermon of the Mount, a lot of red ink in these three chapters. So we're spending four months in it. It's so rich that last week we got through one verse, and we didn't even get to the part where Jesus starts talking. Okay, that's how rich this is. We looked at, here's the verse, if you missed it or you need a reminder, we looked at the first verse of Matthew 5 that says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is building the context for when and where Jesus is preaching this famous sermon. And I love that phrase, when he saw the crowds, because it makes us ask, what did Jesus see? Who was Jesus speaking to? Who's in these crowds? And see, Jesus saw people, obviously. He saw ordinary people. He saw the poor and the working class. He saw the sick. He saw the diseased. He saw people on all sides of society, the powerful as well as the ordinary. He saw those who'd been pushed aside by the systems and religions of the day. He saw people who were tired of this world and who the world was tired of. He saw you. He saw me. He saw us. 
And as Matthew is, is getting ready to tell us what Jesus said in the sermon, he wants us to see that we're invited to be a part of this crowd. He wants us to sit at the feet on this mountain, mountainside next to Jesus and to listen to what he has to say to us. And when Jesus begins this sermon, what does he say? What does he want us to hear as part of this crowd? These are the opening verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And it begins like this. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are the persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now when we hear these verses, when we hear these words of Jesus, already we feel some things, don't we? We really let these words kind of wash over us or kind of think about them. Maybe you feel hope. Maybe you feel hope that there's something more to this world than the struggles that you face, according to Jesus. Maybe you feel validated that life really is as hard and as challenging as it seems. Maybe you feel seen. Maybe you feel seen by Jesus who sees you and the pain that you experience and seen in the yearning that you experience for there to be more to this world than what's around you. But if there's one thing that that Jesus wants us to experience, if there's one thing that Matthew, as he's recording these verses, that he wants us to feel, no matter who you are in the crowd, no matter what you think about God, no matter what you think about Jesus, because there was a lot of people here who didn't know what they thought about Jesus, they were just curious. And if there's one thing that this passage wants us to feel, it's invited. But invited to what? You see, these verses aren't just an introduction to Jesus' sermon. They're an invitation. And see, just, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas. Remember that? Anyone remember Christmas? It feels like it was a year ago. Yes? Anyone still have their decorations up? You need to, it's time. It's time. You just need to pull them down. If the lights are on the house, we'll give you some time. Don't get on a ladder right now. That would be a bad idea. All right. But uh, you remember Christmas? We filled up this room. We read the story We sang the songs, we lit the candle, and we celebrated that a heavenly king had been born into this world. Now, it's just a page later in in Matthew's gospel, but a few decades have have passed in Jesus' life. And so he's now just a young rabbi just stepping onto the scene. And when I say rabbi, it's different than the way that we kind of think of rabbis today. Back in the day, rabbis were these individuals who had devoted their life to studying the Torah, the scriptures, the Old Testament that we know of. And they would study these scriptures, and then they would walk about, and they would teach the people around them what these things were. Meant. They would interpret these scriptures for them. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's wandering around and he's teaching people about the scriptures. And this is the way that Matthew summarizes what Jesus was teaching them. He says, and just before the Sermon on the Mount, he says that Jesus went throughout the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, these are a couple of words that, that we need to dig into. The good news 
of the kingdom. Some of your translations might say the gospel of the kingdom. And when we hear gospel, a lot of times our mind just goes straight to the story about Jesus dying on a cross and rising from a, from a tomb, rising from the dead so that you and I could have eternal life. And that certainly is the gospel. That certainly is good news. It's, it's the best news. But that's not the good news that Jesus is proclaiming here in Matthew 5. See, Easter hadn't even happened yet. There wasn't that story of the cross and the tomb to be able to proclaim. So what is the good news that Jesus was teaching about? Well, the phrase good news actually isn't a religious term as much as it was a a military term back in this day. You see, it comes from the Greek word euangelion. You want to say that. It's a fun word to say, so I'm going to give you some permission. Even you at home, just say that out loud. Euangelion. Yeah. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yeah, you got to say that word? Yeah, so you and Galen, from where we get our word evangelist or evangelism. And what would happen is whenever the military power of the day, which in this day for a long time was the people of, uh, was Rome, the empire of Rome, whenever they conquered a region, they would, send, they would send town criers through the streets all across this region and proclaim the good news that there was a new kingdom in town and proclaim the good news that these people were under the reign of a new and a different king. And so when Jesus shows up, Matthew says that Jesus was proclaiming the good news, the euangelion of the kingdom. And if there was a buzzword in the first century, it was that word kingdom. But it wasn't, it's not just a buzzword in the first century. See, the word kingdom is a buzzword for us today, too. Not for everyone, but for those of us who live in Kansas City. We know a thing or two about kingdoms, don't we? You see, when we hear the word kingdom, we think of the roar of 80,000 fans in Arrowhead. Or we think of Grand Avenue lined by our city celebrating red buses and players and coaches celebrating another championship together. In fact, after the Super Bowl, uh, the Chiefs wanted to produce an ad, they produced an ad wanting to introduce Chiefs Kingdom to the world. Now, I found this ad, I found this promo, you can find it on YouTube, we can't play it here because of streaming rights and copyright and all of that stuff, but I still want us to get to experience it as much as possible because it is a really cool promo, uh, but I'm going to need your help. Can't play the video, but just imagine like some really theatrical, daunting, dramatic music, and, and we're going to imagine some slow rolling footage of shots of the city, and then I'm going to read for us the narration of this video. So just imagine that I'm like this Morgan Freeman, Oscar-worthy narrator as I recite this for us. Can we do that? Can you go with me? Yeah. Okay. So here we go. At first glance, it might seem ordinary, but we know better. We know something they don't. It's more than you think. It can't be touched or held, tasted or bought, yet it remains priceless to those who hold it dear to their hearts. It holds no earthly boundaries, and its energy can be felt everywhere. It began with a vision, and it has grown into something unimaginable, But don't take my word for it. Take the word of our fans. (sighs) Chiefs. It's called Chiefs Kingdom. And it beckons all to join. You're welcome in this kingdom. And while the seasons change, we don't. 
We weather the ups and downs and withstand the tough times reflecting on the moments. From the mountaintop, you can see this kingdom's expanse. It's always there. When you're in it, you're home. So welcome to Chief's Kingdom. This, this is how the city of Kansas City wanted to introduce our kingdom to the whole world. And the way that it's described here, it's actually not far off from the kind of kingdom that Jesus is introducing to the world. I mean, just think about some of the phrases from that commercial, that it can't be touched or held, that there's no earthly boundaries to this kingdom, that it's priceless, and that it beckons all to join, except that Jesus isn't talking about chief's kingdom. He's not talking about any kingdom of this world. He's talking about the kingdom of God. What sometimes gets called in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven. And so to understand that kingdom, we need to go back about seven centuries before Jesus walked the earth. See, at this time, 700 years before Jesus came, the Israelites had just gotten completely ransacked by the people of Babylon. That was the military power of that day. And they came in and they ruined the city. They destroyed their temple. They destroyed the walls. And they took a bunch of the Israelites and they took them captive and carried them off away from their homeland. And there were a few people who were left. And to these people, the prophet Isaiah writes these words. He says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Now, this was a reminder to the Israelites that even though they were in ruins, their God was still in charge. But Isaiah isn't just giving them a reminder. He's giving them a promise that one day God would return and he would restore his kingdom. But he wouldn't simply restore the kingdom of Israel. Because although Israel was meant to be a, 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 the kingdom, it was meant to be a picture, but even though it was a picture of God's kingdom, it wasn't the beginning of it. It wasn't the extent of it. See, God's kingdom goes all the way back to the opening pages of Scripture when we see God creating a realm that he would reign over, and we called it Eden. He created a people that he would dwell with. He created a kingdom that was meant to grow and to flourish and to bring life until that kingdom was broken by the sin and the evil of our world. And ever since then, this world had been yearning, yearning for the kingdom of God to be restored. And this is the kingdom that Jesus was announcing. This day that Isaiah had prophesied was come, had come. This is what Jesus is inviting you and I and all of the crowds around him to be a part of. And so we need to be clear, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about? Because this is going to be the major theme of this whole sermon. It's a major theme of the whole book of Matthew. The kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing and inviting us to be a part of. The kingdom is God reclaiming his world and bringing about a people who live under his reign. The God is reclaiming this broken and lost world. And he's bringing about a people a community, a movement of who will live under his good reign. And this 
is the vision that as we walk through the Sermon of the Mount, that Jesus has continued to show us is what does it mean to be a people of the kingdom of God and how do we live in it? But first, the very first thing Jesus does is he invites us to be a part of this kingdom. That Jesus looks at the crowds, he looks at the unimportant and unlikely, and he says, blessed are you for yours is this kingdom of God. And so as we look closer at these verses, I want us to see what this invitation meant for the crowd that was gathered listening to Jesus. And I want us to see what it can mean for us too. You see, here's the first thing that this invitation means. It means that you're first in line. That when Jesus looks at these crowds, the unimportant, the unlikely, and he says, blessed are you, he says, you're first in line. There's a lot of time that I've spent waiting to get onto an airplane. And I tend to fly airlines that do things in groupings and numbers. I'm a big Southwest travel. Anyone else? Yeah. So you kind of know there's a lot that happens inside your soul when you're waiting in line to get onto an airplane. You know, I'm not, I'm not quick enough to check in on time. I'm too cheap to pay for the automatic uh, uh, boarding and all that. And so I'm usually in one of the, the middle or late groups. And I'm so surprised that in just a few moments as I'm standing in line at the airport that I can, I can create so much jealousy and, uh, and resentment for the people who are standing in front of me. Because in that moment, I've been identified by a number. You ever felt that? And it's just this, this little, that whole thing, it's just a little bit of a microcosm of our world. See, our world has groupings and numbers too, doesn't it? Our society tends to put people in the front of the line and the back of the line. We feel like we're a number sometimes, that we're a group. So when Jesus is inviting these people to this kingdom, he's looking at the people who are at the end of the line of this world. And he says, yours is the kingdom, meaning now in my kingdom, you're first in line. And the way that he does it is by calling them blessed. And to be blessed, that can feel hopeful, but it can also be a little confusing. Because the word, the word blessed is a, is a little bit of a confusing word. I'll tell you what I mean. I uh, spent about 15 years of my life, right after college, living in the South. And I love the South. Anyone live in the South? Different part of the South? No, just me? Okay, we got a few. We got, wait, you're my wife, that's why. Uh, Anyone? Well, it's a beautiful place. It's where I learned to love twangy music, and I bought my first truck, my only truck, the one that I still drive, and made some incredible friends. And just like other parts of the country, there are certain phrases that you hear a lot of in this particular part of the country. And one that I heard probably more than any other was the phrase, bless your heart. Anyone heard that? Sometimes it leaks up here. Now, to really get the full effect, you need to like say it with a deep southern accent. It was usually said by uh, like an older woman in response to me sharing some unfortunate thing that had happened to me. You know, they'd say, well, bless your heart. Right? And so if I were to be like, oh, my, my girlfriend broke up with me, they'd say, well, bless your heart. Or, you know, my house burned down, bless your heart. Or I'm a Mizzou fan, bless your heart. You know? And I thought it was sweet. Until over time, I realized there's, this is really just code for it sucks to be you. <laughs> it was the appearance of kindness. It was the appearance of compassion and care, but it lacked the substance. And so when Jesus looks at those who have, heart, have it hardest in our world and he calls them blessed, we sometimes wonder, is he really just saying like kind of sweetly and kindly, it kind of sucks to be you, doesn't it? See, that's the temptation that we, can, that we can have when we read these verses, that they're just well-intentioned but meaningless platitudes. 
Is Jesus just like a southern elderly woman trying to get us to feel better about our terrible circumstances? Well, I want us to see what Jesus is actually doing. See, there's a couple of Greek words for the word blessed that as Matthew is recording Jesus' Jesus's, uh, uh, sermon that, he, that Matthew could have used to translate this for us. The first word for blessed is a religious word that we would expect Jesus to use. It's the Greek word uh, eulogia. Eulogia. It's a kind of a, has a religious connotation that means to invoke God's blessing. It shows up time and time again in Scripture. Now, the second word that Matthew could have used uh, to talk about the blessings that Jesus is offering is the word makarios, which isn't religious at all. It means fortunate or happy. It's actually a word that's used in the literature, literature of the day to describe the state of the Greek gods. It was a blissful state that they enjoyed on the Mount of Olympus, that they were fortunate, that they were happy. Now, when Jesus is saying, blessed are you, which of these two words do you think he is using? It's actually not the one you would think. It's the word makarios. That Jesus is saying, makarios are you. Fortunate and happy are you. Now, there, that's a, he's saying if you are the unfortunate ones in this world, you are the fortunate ones in God's kingdom. And if there's a phrase that I think maybe better represents what this means for us today, I think it's the phrase, it's good to be you. Jesus is saying, it's good to be you. And that's a phrase we can relate to. Because there are people that you've thought, it must be good to be them. It must be good to be that person who's in the A boarding group or who flies some other airline that doesn't do it this way. It must be good to be that person with season tickets or better yet, a suite. It must be good to be those who landed a good deal on a nice house or got a good job at a great company. It must be good to be that person on Shark Tank with the idea that you wish you had thought of first and were making money from. It must be good to be the person whose marriage made it when yours didn't. And you think to yourself, it sure must be good to be them. And let's admit it, we all have people that we get a little envious of because they seem to have a little gooder than us. They may have more money or more influence, more time, more health, more rest, more happiness. And things just seem to go their way in this world. It must be good to be them. Jesus says to the unfortunate, to the unlucky, even to the unhappy in this world, how good it is to be you. Why? Because you, you are first in line for the fortune and favor of God that you won't find, that you can't find in the kingdoms of this world. Listen to how one commentator, Stanley Hauerwas, explains this. He says, too often, these verses, these blessings that we have, that have in Christian history been turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. Now, when we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with, a, with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, these blessings are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or mourn all the time or to try and get yourself persecuted. He simply announces, I love this, the great surprise, that these people who are not significant or honored in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be first among those called into God's kingdom. 
You see, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the wealthy and wise, or blessed are the rich and comfortable, or blessed are the successful and smart, or the self-sufficient. Jesus looks at the unimportant. He looks at the unattractive and the unlikely, and he says, yours, yours is the kingdom of God. See, we don't do anything to be welcomed into this kingdom. We just hear the invitation that he offers us. And as theologian and philosopher and smarty pants Dallas Willard says, that's crazy. That's crazy. You don't do anything. You just walk in. And this is the first thing that the invitation of Jesus into this kingdom means for us. That you, you who are last in this world, are first in line for the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing. It's it's that you'll get your fill. See, if there's one thing that describes the people that Jesus announces his kingdom to, the people that he describes in these verses, it's emptiness. I want to look more closely at, these, at the first four blessings in this passage. And next week, Dan's going to take us into the, the next half because there's just so much here that we wanted to be able to spread enough time, give enough time to be able to, to look and dig into these things. But here's the first group that Jesus, identif- that Jesus mentions. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be empty. It means to be empty-handed. It means to be empty-hearted. Sometimes we try to maybe kind of make this distinction between like spiritual poverty and physical poverty. That's a very modern and Western way of thinking about things. Back in Jesus' day, there would have been no distinction. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. He's saying, he's saying yours is the kingdom. When you're out of gas, when you're out of hope, when you're out of strength, when you're physically broke and spiritually broken, that's when you're poor in spirit. When you've lost it all, as author Eugene Peterson puts it, God's kingdom is there for the finding. Here's the second group that Jesus mentions. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This week I uh, sat in a funeral of a neighbor who died at 44 of a heart attack. He was an incredible guy who coached our son's basketball team and through all of the class parties, he was a good neighbor, he was a good friend to many, he was a good dad. And as I watched his wife and their four kids walk into this funeral, I saw what we would all expect to see. I saw a family that was mourning. 44-year-old dads of four aren't meant to die that soon. And when you're mourning, whether you're mourning the loss of a family member or a friend, whether you're mourning the loss of a pregnancy or an adoption or a career or a dream, you're not simply mourning what you lost. You're mourning what's been taken from you, what's been stolen from you by this world. You're mourning the dream of what you hoped could be. This is what we see Jesus doing at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. That when Jesus showed up, John, his disciple, says that Jesus wept. He wept because Jesus lost a friend. But he also wept because he mourned a world that was different than what he created it to be. See, death was never part of the picture of the kingdom that God had envisioned. This is the result of sin and evil in our world, the sin and evil that steals things from us. And so we mourn. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. 
for they will inherit the earth. Now, uh, meek, this isn't a word that we use a lot of, but it, it essentially it means, it means the, the humble and the humbled. It means you don't have much to show for yourself. You have no power, no influence, no status, and even if you do, you feel no need to assert yourself or to assert the platform that you might deserve. You feel no need to impress others with the power that you have. And here's the last group that Jesus mentions. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now righteousness, this this is a word that simply means to be in right relationship with God. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous. Catch this. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The implication here is that Jesus is saying, blessed are you who aren't righteous. Blessed are you who are so unrighteous that you can only starve for righteousness. Now, this would have turned heads of a lot of people in the day who thought that they were righteous. And there were many. Dan talked about several of them last week. There were a lot of people who had worked hard for their righteousness, and they walked around demonstrating their righteousness. And they would not have liked what Jesus said here, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They wished he would have said blessed are those who are righteous. But the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about isn't a kind that can be worn on ourselves like garments. See, righteousness, it's a relational word. It's the kind of righteousness that can only come about by grace. It's the kind of righteousness that starts from the inside of us and slowly works its way out. And Jesus is saying, if that's a righteousness that you hunger for, that you dream of, that maybe you wonder if it's even possible for you and all of the stuff that's in your life, you, you are blessed. You are fortunate. Because our righteousness isn't based on what we do or don't do for God. It's based on what he does for us. Now, as we, as we think about these blessings, just these four, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. These give us some questions to ask ourselves. You see, there's, there's comfort in these promises if you find yourself feeling like one of the groups that Jesus mentions, but there's also some conviction. There's also some challenge, some reflection. It, it causes us to ask questions like these, like, am I poor in spirit? Meaning, am I, do I live reliant on God or do I live reliant on myself? If I mourn, do I mourn the world that steals life from me? Do I mourn just as much the sin that I let in my life that steals the life that Jesus wants for me? Am I meek? Or do I insist on impressing others with the status that I'd like to think that I have or that I'd like them to think I have? Do I truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do I fill that hunger with my own self-righteousness? And these are hard questions to ask. So I'll go first. As I was thinking about these, there was one that kind of jumped off the page for me, and it was the last one. Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because the idea of hungering and thirsting, this, this, is, this is the image of starving. 
that you are desperate. You have just finished a marathon and the only thing that you can dream of is a bottle of water. That the psalmist in Psalm 42, King David, who was one of the most righteous in the land by all accounts, that he said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. That's the kind of hungering and thirsting that Jesus is talking about here. And I'm wondering, do I hunger and thirst for God like that? And if I'm honest, I, I know I don't. And why? I think it's because I spend too much time snacking on the things of this world. And when we snack on the things of this world, then we don't have room for the beautiful banquet feast of grace and righteousness that God gives us. It's like having an incredible meal waiting for you at home after work, but you stop by Wendy's. That's what happens sometimes, that's what happens in my life when I snack on the things of this world. When I numb my hunger with another Amazon click or another episode or something, these are fine things, but when I'm numbing my hum- hunger with the things of this world that it puts around me. You see, when we really dig into these Beatitudes, they have a way of showing us just how empty we are when we try to live apart from God. But when we see the emptiness that is inside of us, Jesus says, then you see how good you have it because then you've made room in yourself and in your life for the kingdom of God. Then, when you realize your own emptiness, then you can be comforted. Then you inherit the earth. Then you will be filled because you haven't just found the kingdom. Hear this. You found the king that you've been longing for. You see, Jesus isn't simply some town crier who's walking through the streets announcing the good news of some kingdom. He's the king himself. And that's the last and most important invitation of these blessings that we read here is that you found your king. See, when we step back and we look at the picture that the blessings come together, when we take all four of those things, hungry and poor in spirit, mournful, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we put them into a picture, we don't just see a kingdom in this picture. We see a king. In Jesus, we see a king who himself was poor in spirit. In Jesus, we see a king who mourned the condition of this world. We see a king who was meek, that despite being God, despite being the most powerful in the land, despite being the one who deserved every platform and every stage that this earth could have offered him, that he, as one scripture writer put it, made himself nothing. And he did so because he's a king who hungered and thirsted for you and I to be made righteous with God. For anything to be made right in this world would take Jesus doing what no other king in this world would be willing to do. There's a scene from the TV series uh, The Chosen. I know many of you love that show. It's a, I love it. It's an incredible show that I really appreciate how it helps kind of bring some of these stories and teachings to life by imagining what might this have looked like when Jesus walked the earth. Now, there's one episode where it talks about how this sermon came about for Jesus. And of course, we don't know. Matthew doesn't give us those details. But I realize as I, as I read this sermon, my tendency is to think that Jesus kind of came up with this all on the spot. And he just happened to like preach the greatest sermon ever, and Matthew just happened to be there writing it all down. And uh, sure, that, it could have happened that way. He is God, by the way. So I don't want to dismiss that completely. But what I love about the way that the writers of The Chosen portrayed it is that Jesus actually thought about, prayed about, worked on 
the different parts of this sermon on his own. And in fact, in, in one episode, now Jesus has been staying up all night working on the very opening of this sermon, and he wakes up Matthew early one morning, and Jesus says to Matthew, Matthew, I've got it. Matthew says, what have you got? He says, the opening. It's a map. It's a map for people to find me. And then Matthew pulls out his notepad and whatever he was writing with, and Jesus begins to recite for him these beatitudes, these blessings that would be the opening of his Sermon on the Mount. He recites these things for him. Matthew writes it all down, and then when he's done, Matthew nods his head and then looks at Jesus and says, but, but how is it a map? And Jesus says, if someone wants to find me, these are the groups that they should look for. They should look for the poor in spirit. They should look for the meek and the mournful and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, if we want to find Jesus, he tells us to look for the people that he came to announce his kingdom to. That's what Jesus is doing throughout this teaching. He's offering his kingdom to those who have no kingdom of their own. Because those are the ones, those are the groups and the people who will resonate with his message. These are the ones who will take time to hear the invitation. These are the ones that Jesus comes to, the ones who have nothing. And that's, that's really the question that we have to ask ourselves this week. And it's this. Is there a kingdom of my own that's keeping me from the kingdom of God? Is there a kingdom of my own, of your own, that's keeping you from the kingdom of God? You see, there's no shortage of kingdoms in our world. If you want to know what kingdom you're living in, just just ask yourself, what power are you living under? Sure, there's political kingdoms, and there's sports kingdoms, all of these things, but there's also kingdoms of power, kingdom of money, kingdom of fear, kingdom of shame. It's a question of what power are you living under, but it's not so much a question of what power. It's a question of whose power power of God or the power of someone else. And if I can just make this really simple for us, there's really only two kingdoms in this world. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of ourselves. The kingdom of us. The kingdom of, of me, of, of you. That when we live in our kingdom, the world tells us that's how, that's how we get filled. That's how we get satisfied. That's how we get comforted. That's how we inherit something worth, worth holding on to. The problem with this is when you're living in your kingdom and when he's living in his kingdom and when they're living in their kingdom, then we have all of these kingdoms just rubbing up against one another. And why do you think that we're so angry all the time? Why do you think that there's so much hatred in our world? Why do you think that people keep getting pushed to the back of the line? Because we have a tendency to live in the kingdom of ourselves. And to those of us who find ourselves in that place, 
the invitation of Jesus that I want us to hear this morning is this invitation to turn, to turn from our kingdoms and to turn to his. The word that Jesus uses is repent. And that's what it means, that I let go of my kingdom and I turn and I agree with Jesus that his is so much better than one I could ever hold on to. So this is my prayer for us this week, Heartland. That this week, that we would find ourselves in the crowd. That we would hear the words of Jesus. Hear the invitation that he's offering us. That we would hear the good news. That the kingdom of God has come and blessed are you. First in line are you. Filled are you. Because yours is the kingdom of God. So next week, we're going to look at the rest of this invitation. But I hope this week, take some time and, and take time with these verses. Read over them. Read over them again. Reflect on them. Meditate on them. Because when we lean into these verses of Jesus, he has a way of doing some important work in, in each of our hearts. And then let's come back next week ready to receive what more he has for us. So as we go, I just want to pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, pray together. You online, we're praying for you too. We're saying, God, thank you so much that you are a God who sees us right where we are. That whether we're on the front lines of this crowd, eager for every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, or whether we're standing off in a distance trying to figure out what we think about all of this, you see us. You give us that space and you offer us an invitation. An invitation to a, a kingdom that whether we know it or not is the kingdom that we were created for. The kingdom that we long for. And if we insist on living for our own kingdom or for the kingdoms of this world, would you help us to experience the emptiness that goes with that? Because we know it's only when we see that emptiness that we're ready to receive the fullness of what you have for us. And thank you, Jesus, for being a king, a king who walked this earth, who didn't sit in a palace, but who mourned with those who mourn, who didn't assert your power so that you could show your power on the cross and through the grave. And for that, we are grateful. For that, we say thank you. Friends, if this is your prayer, would you just say together as one body, one church, amen? Amen, amen. Hey, we hope you have a safe and warm and blessed week. Remember, if you want to hang out for First Steps, just head over there. We'd love to meet you. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday.